Welcome to the Wheel of Sport, the home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally, and with me is Matt Lavery. Hello. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Yeah, good. Now we're going to, uh, we'll get spinning the wheel. Go on, go on you, you give it a spin, Can I give Matt. a spin? Yeah, please do. No, on, don't break it. We know how fragile <laughs> temperamental this wheel can be. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like the same every week, but the listener cannot see its, you know, undulating, um, (laughs) dangerous look that it gives every time we spin it. The topic this episode is two tribes. I don't think we've had two tribes before. So no, no. So uh, this is a first for the wheel of sport. Great. Well, it's a new topic. It's always been on the wheel. It's obviously always been on the wheel. But you know, it's. Probability has just never. Maybe it's weighted. Two tribes. <laughs> two tribes. Maybe we need to dope test the wheel. Ah <laughs> yeah, <good> <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, I'm going to take us back to 1999 to the Ryder Cup. The Ryder Cup. Now, the Ryder Cup. Look, I'm just going to focus in on 99, but I think we just give a brief kind of synopsis of what the Ryder Cup is. The Ryder Cup used to be Great Britain playing golf against the USA, yeah. which is a, a bit unfair because Great Britain is much better than the USA. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it then, kind of in the post-war period, it became Europe mm. against the USA. So there's 28 points up for grabs because there's you know four in every four ball, four in every foursome. So that's 16 by the time you've done Friday and Saturday. And then there's 12 matchups on a Sunday, which is another 12 points. So 28 points in total available. So it's the first of 14 and a half points. And it doesn't matter how you get there, how badly you lose, how well you win, 14 and a half points, your Ryder Cup is yours. <laughs> Did that all make sense? Made sense to me. I hope our listeners are... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've got Google. Come on. What was interesting going into 1999 is that the uh, Europeans had won the last two. Uh, they're playing in just outside Boston in the country club called Brookline. Uh, it's only like it's less than 10k away from the center of Boston. It's like really close to uh, Fenway Park, uh, home of the Boston Red Sox. Mm. So it's like quite an urban course, really. And it's a huge setup there amazing grounds and as you would expect for something this grand the european team is captained by mark james and both of the captains um ben crenshaw of uh, the usa they they don't play but they're responsible to kind of be in the father figure and they pick their 12 players mm. from the tour and going into this america look good <laughs> let just run down the european team We've got two players in the top 10, Colin Montgomery and Lee Westwood. Then after that, we've got Jasper Parnovic. Say we. I'm trying to be part of non-partisan here. <laughs> it shows that this is the essence of the Ryder Cup, isn't it? It's like it can't help. <laughs> so Jasper Parnovic is ranked 15th, then Darren Clark 21st. And then after that, you've got Sergio Garcia, who at the time is a teenager. He's ranked 25th in the world. But you go down the list, Paul Laurie, 48th. Jarmo Sandlin, 73rd in the world. John van der Velt of Carnoustie fame, 90th in the world. So it's not amazing 
the European team at this point. Not a vintage team. The other fact is that the majority of the players have never played in the Ryder Cup. One of the key factors of the Ryder Cup is the crowd interaction, the intensity, the teamwork. Rookies aren't great <laughs> because they can, it, particularly having seven of them in your team of 12, mm. seven players who've n- no experience of this format. So it's a real challenge Considering when you then look down the list of who's playing for the States, Tiger Woods, <laughs> world number one, David Duval, world number two, Davis Love the third, ranked fourth in the world, Payne Stewart, ranked eighth in the world, Hal Sutton, ranked tenth in the world, Mark O'Meara, eleventh, Justin Leonard, twelfth, Phil Mickelson, thirteenth, Jim Furyk, fourteenth, Jeff Maggot, sixteenth, Tom Lehman, twenty-third, and Steve Pate, twenty-eighth. I wonder if they gave Steve Pate grief. Yeah. <laughs> you are rubbish compared to I, I, And yet he'd walk into the European side. I, I love, though, that the Europeans would call him a Steve Pate. <laughs> <laughs> so they've got five of the top 10 players in the world, 10 of the top 20, and only one of their players is a rookie. Right. who's never played in the Ryder Cup. And that rookie happens to be David Duval, who's second in the world <laughs> behind Tiger Woods. Wow. So this is a strong team. It was reported that Payne Stewart had said the European team were not fit to caddy <laughs> for the USA team. Wow. That's going to go down well. Looking at the list, it's probably a fair point. Probably. <laughs> It's not the point. (laughs) Kind of going into this, you can understand that the Americans are pretty pumped up about it. But there's been a real challenge in the American team in terms of unity because you don't get paid for the Ryder Cup. There's no cash prize for the Ryder Cup. It's simply about pride. Now, that didn't sit well with some of the American team already multi-millionaires but were not happy about not being paid for this tournament Mm -hmm. whereas the certainly ben crenshaw the captain he was quite livid about this because he's thinking you represent your country he's a very patriotic guy from the south southern states and he's just really um this is causing a fractious atmosphere in the you know, particularly between the younger players and the more traditional players. If you don't find your own motivation to play in the Ryder Cup, there's something wrong with you. You don't belong playing there. And so they're a bit split. The European team being rookies, they're really excited to be there. The pressure in some ways is off them as well because no one's expecting them to win. You put up a good fight, but there's seven rookies in the team and clearly man for man, they're not up to the up to the task of beating the USA. But as it played out on the Friday, it was the Europeans who, perhaps in their relaxed mode, the pressure is off them. They are playing on foreign soil, but they start to edge a lead. After the first foursome in the morning, two and a half points to one and a half points, and then the four ball, three and a half points to half a point. Wow. They're six points to the USA's two. Four-point lead. A four-point lead already after the first day. Wow. Now, the Americans are pretty filthy about this because the one thing is about the Brookline is it has a huge amount of capacity for fans. 
Now, a lot of golf courses are quite um, packed together and they don't have enough capacity for fans to be uh, in between fairways and, and holes and so on. But luxury of space here, we've got lots of fans and they're making themselves heard. Heaps of European fans there, and but also a lot of Americans. Right, and they're not happy. And making themselves heard. It's a definitely a feature of what's happening and particularly Europe are winning and they're kind of Sergio Garcia for example he's a teenager at the time he starts celebrating at one hole and he's kind of punching the air and jumping up and down exuberant youngster this wasn't really taken very well by the Americans the public or the team the public I think the team were a bit annoyed as well and this it almost starts this atmosphere starts to create that this is going to boil over at some point there's a bit of animosity yeah and the atmosphere is definitely getting kind of a little bit tipping over the side that you just wouldn't expect on a golf course and so day two comes around on a saturday they play the foursome in the morning two points each europe is still it's 8-4. They're still four points ahead. And then they play in the afternoon, two each again. Europe uh, still four points ahead, 10-6. to six. Now, Europe on the final day, on the 12 matchup, they only need four and a half points. And in the history of the Ryder Cup to this point, no team had ever overturned a bigger deficit than two points. So this is looking impossible. Wow. And at this stage, is the feeling that the Americans can't do it because of the history or that they can do it because of their pedigree? I think there's a definite sense that the Americans have lost it and the divisions in the team have really come home to roost, that they are clearly the best team, clearly the most talented. But because of their division in the team and because of Europe's unity, that that's why they're ahead. And the other thing is, is that... Ben Crenshaw, he faces up to the press after the second day on Saturday and says, I believe in fate and I've got a good feeling about this. Well, the journalists in the room were were laughing at him. They thought, <laughs> I mean, what do you mean? Fate? Like they, you know, they want substance. Yes. They And the American media are kind of dragging the the American team through the mud because they're livid with them that these Europeans, you know, you look at that team, seven rookies in there, one ranked 90th in the world, the four points ahead after two, it's, it's embarrassing. And now you're waiting on fate. (laughs) And now fate's going to come along. So the weird thing is, is that something happens that evening. So Ben Crenshaw calls it probably can be described as like a, a family crisis meeting with the American team. So he gets them all in the hotel like function room and he gives them this patriotic speech, you know, take a knee boys, you know, get them all around. You know, we've, we've come this far and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, we've got to forget our differences, blah, blah, blah. And then in a strange twist, he decides to read the Travis letter. Now, the Travis letter is from Travis writing to reach you from the Alamo. 
1836. It's a very famous letter in American history where Travis basically called upon the people of Texas and all Americans around the world. And he was surrounded by Mexicans and outnumbered in a battle. And he said, I'll basically, we'll never surrender and it'll be victory or death. Now, this seems odd to me. But what's also odd about it is that Ben Crenshaw didn't read this letter out. He got his uh, got his friend to read it out. Walk in, George W. Bush. <laughs> so George Bush is George W. Bush, who was then governor. Hang on, I was going to say, what was he? At he the was time? then governor of Texas, ninety nine. He didn't become president until two thousand one. Right. George W. Bush. But presumably, he's already doing his campaign for the yeah, president. President. Bid, yeah. He walks in and reads Travis's letter from the Alamo. Wow. <laughs> it's some sort of bizarre scene. I mean, what must you be thinking there? <laughs> I think this is the beauty of America, though, because I reckon if you did that in like a British team about some. Like, people just go, what are you talking about? But they bought it. Wow. They go out the next morning and they are firing. There's one particular thing that they do which catches the Europeans off guard. And it's probably a bit of a masterstroke, really, by Ben Crenshaw. Because what he does is he... Because normally you leave your best players till the last. Yeah. He puts them all at the front. <laughs> so he front loads the 12 matchups and the Europeans do the opposite so you've got the best players in the world playing against you know the lower ranked and so he he knew that they had to have a good start to get some sort of momentum if they were going to have any chance of overturning it because you know at, the, at this point they're 10-6 down they need to what is it, eight and a half points out of 12 matches uh, yeah. I so so tough out of the blocks, they are absolutely hammering. They win the first six matchups. Goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're 12 points to 10. Have they split any points? So they've, so they've played 6-1-6, six, six, is Once that right? Once played 6-1-6. Six, six. Wow. Not split a one. So they've got six, six more matches to, yep. to play, and uh, they've got the, a two-point lead. Yep. Wow. And every halt the playing some tremendous golf as well like brilliant chip-ins long drives like long putts it's all happening but the thing is is what's happening is that when they make a shot they are really riling the crowd they're punching the air they're like you know really come on you know that kind of stuff that you just don't see on a golf course the europeans when they are missing a shot or it goes close the American crowd start to cheer. Now, this is not not on, is it? No. In golf, it's very... Or in anything, really. I hate it. You know, even like you're watching the, the soccer and you watch like a middle-aged man wearing a jumper with a replica shirt over the top and he outstretches his arms when the opposition missed the target. <laughs> and you think, mate, <laughs> sort your life out. You know, there is this like element of, you know... <laughs> but you shouldn't see it on the golf course. But it is happening with knobs on like the level of vitriol and abuse that's happening reportedly mark james the european captain apparently his wife got spat on by oh, one of the fans good. 
the Europeans are getting quite heavily abused. One player who's really singled out is Colin Montgomery. Now, he's singled out largely because the Americans know that he's got a short fuse. He's got a temper on him. And he'd previously let that show in previous tournaments. And so they singled him out. Now, he was one of the later pairs, and he was paired up with Payne Stewart, who, remember, had said that they weren't fit to caddy. So Payne Stewart is paired up with Colin Montgomery. Now, on one hole, Montgomery, he said it was the first time of the day where he teed with complete silence in the crowd. He gets to the top of his swing, and one of the Americans shouts, you see you next Tuesday. And he said he'd never heard anything like that on a golf course before. He had to s- step away from his shot and try to replay it. Because he was so angry. Well, just you know the level of disrespect and the level like it, it, out of control mm. that this crowd had kind of... It had become like a bay and mob. It's been called the, the first invention of the golf hooligan. <laughs> it just seems like an oxymoron. But here we are in the heat of the battle two tribes the europeans and the americans and everything's on the line the other fact is that colin montgomery had been referred to by a former golfer and journalist uh, as mrs doubtfire because he does slightly resemble the robin williams character <laughs> <laughs> and the american fans were letting him know that they knew that reference also which made it difficult so Colin Montgomery is playing Payne Stewart and uh, Jose Maria Olathabal uh, is playing Justin Leonard and these are the last two pairs to come in. It's 12 to 14 points. They only need half a point, the Americans, now to claim victory and there's, you know, there's, there are only the two matches out there. Payne Stewart manages to tie the 15th with a 35-foot putt. Amazing scene. And... There is, the crowd are going absolutely bonkers at this point. Wow. They're the last game to come in. In front of them, you've got Olaf Arbel and Justin Leonard. Now, Olaf Arbel was Kane and Leonard. He was, with seven holes to play, he was four up. And Leonard had actually said, like, after the first nine, he's like, uh, shall I just go home? Like, I don't want to. He, he was, I had tears in his eyes. He was thinking, I've just got to throw it in. By the 15th hole, he tied as well with a very similar putt to Payne Stewart. A 40-foot putt, and it was game on. By the 17th, Leonard has a similar putt for a birdie. Now, Olathabel, if he's got a birdie putt, which is 15 feet closer to Leonard's. Now, if Leonard holds it, he gets a birdie. And if Olathabel then holds... They still level. But what happens is that Leonard plays the shot, holds an a spectacular putt, incredible, and then all hell breaks loose. The spontaneous celebration that followed was both premature and over the top, and it was surely disruptive to Olathabal who faced a difficult assignment under even the best of circumstances. Olaf Arbel is still stood, waiting to play his shot. Waiting to play the putt. 
And what, the crowds of... And the crowd, the American players, the players' wives, the cameramen reportedly walk across, run across Olathabel's line of sight, and it is on. Justin Leonard is running around like just, it's an absolute melee. And this is chaos. And the game still hasn't been won. And so the level of disrespect to Olathabel was extraordinary. After everybody calms down, Olathabel's got a player's put and misses by a couple of inches. But after all of this pandemonium, so he could have still hung on mm. and the game would have still been live. But this level of like disrespect and craziness that happened was extraordinary and just never seen before. And also the fact that it was not just the crowd, it was the players, mm. it was their wives, it was their entourage, it was also the cameramen who kind of got involved as well because they're trying to cover this amazing moment. And it was an amazing moment, but you've got to realise there's still a player to play. Yeah, And so in a really nice kind of antidote to this is Payne Stewart and Colin Montgomery. Payne Stewart, Montgomery said, had protected him all the way around the course. He'd helped get people ejected who were given Montgomery abuse. He'd um, told the crowd to be quiet, intervened with marshals to tell him. He'd really tried his best to calm uh, the situation down and keep Montgomery protected, mm. which is a great show of class and sportsmanship by Payne yeah, especially Stewart. Especially after he'd yeah. been paired with him and made those comments before the tournament. Yeah, and I think um, it's really interesting that when they actually got to the final hole, the Americans had already won their 14 and a half points. But when they both uh, hit their shots onto the green in regulation, Payne Stewart picked up Montgomery's ball and conceded the hole and said, you can have that last hole. It ended up, the official scores were 14 and a half to 13 and a half. When perhaps if Payne Stewart had a one, it would have been 15 or 15 and a half yeah. to 12 and a half. So as a real class act to give Montgomery that hole to, as almost as a way of an apology for the abuse that he'd suffered from a, from yeah, around, the, around the, the crowd. So, and it was really sad that Payne Stewart, not a month later, died in a plane crash. Oh, wow. So in a Learjet from his home in Florida, he was flying to Texas for the last um, tournament of the year and the cabin didn't pressurize. Everybody on the plane got hypoxic and died. And so Payne Stewart, I think he was only 42 when he died, but mm. his his last real public appearance was at this Ryder Cup and his, one of his last actions was to have this moment of class. Mm. Phil Mickelson has a photograph at his home which is of Payne Stewart celebrating the USA's victory in the evening at the country club stood on the piano with a whiskey in one hand a beer in the other and a cigar in his fingers nice so it's quite special and it's really nice that this has kind of marred the Ryder Cup and I think it would have been something that was set in trend and would have continued 
But because of the kind of outpouring of support and grief for Payne Stewart, he used to wear the plus fours and knickerbockers and long long uh, socks when he played. And uh, some of the players did that in respect of him and wore those. Also, by the time they play the next Ryder Cup, uh, 9-11 happens a couple of weeks before. Mm. And so there was a sense that everything was dampened and everything was a bit calmer uh, in this period of kind of international uh felt grief as well so the Ryder cup lives on and i don't think the travis letter has been invoked since <laughs> but isn't it amazing I love that. left george of stage george w. Bush. it's just such an unlike in boston as well he's from texas yeah crazy crazy but brookline Ryder cup 1999 the birth of the <laughs> golf hooligan but Payne Stewart class act and one that the Europeans can be kind of proud of still and shout out to uh, Paddy Harrington and uh, Paul Laurie who on that last day actually won uh, their pairings and um, yeah the Ryder Cup great format great way to get two tribes against each other oh it's such a an amazing tournament I, every time. I just hope that Europe can stay united. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the Brits are still allowed in? <laughs> time will tell. We'll, we'll end on that political note. Yeah. Um, thanks, Matt. Thank you very much. Great story, Ian. Thank you. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter or get in touch with us through those mediums. And uh, not psychic mediums, definitely not. Uh, and, and leave us a review on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast. That would be very kind of you. Thanks. And we'll speak to you next time on the Wheel of Sports. Thanks, Thanks man. Bye-bye. They believed in themselves. Atwe, it's up in the trees, if it's fate. However unsavory, it had been a remarkable comeback by the American team. <laughs> <laughs>